Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. Our guest this week is Jake Daly, founder of U.S. Rake Force, a veteran-owned nonprofit focused on regenerative agroforestry practices like fuel fire reduction and biochar creation, as well as providing a therapeutic environment for veterans to experience ag. Growing up on public land in Idaho, Jake spent most of his formidable years outdoor, hunting, fishing, and working in environmental conservation. His father and stepfather both served in the military, and he was born on July 4th in Pearl Harbor. So it was almost preordained that Jake would also serve his country. He enlisted in the Army in 2007, where he later deployed to Iraq, before leaving the Army several years later. During this deployment, Jake was faced with an event that dramatically changed the direction of his life after service and moved him into agriculture as a way to cope. In this episode, we get into that event during deployment and how it affected his life following, his difficult transition out of the Army, the trial and error he experienced with a variety of different jobs and interests trying to find purpose, his foray into homesteading and eventually the U.S. Rake Force in Western Washington, and finally regenerative agroforestry, biochar creation, hugel culture, and fuel fire reduction activities. Enjoy. I grew up in Idaho, um, in Boise, and uh, we moved there when I was like uh, six years old. So um, farther, farther back, I was born on the 4th of July um, at Pearl Harbor. Um, my biological father was uh, a sailor. He was in the Navy. Um, and so I was born at Pearl Harbor. Um, on the 4th of July, right? Um, I think it was written in the stars for me to join the army, um, and I did. Um, but first we moved to Idaho when I was six years old. Uh, my mom married my stepdad who was a Marine. Um, so uh, biological father was in the Navy. I was raised by a Marine. Um, and uh, growing up in Idaho, I grew up on uh, Idaho public land. Um, Idaho has uh, the most public land in the lower 48 states. Um, we're second only in the nation to Alaska, right? Um, so we had, we had vast amounts of, of wilderness to go hunting and fishing and camping and really grow to appreciate the, the great outdoors. Um, and in high school, uh, I was able to take two years of an environmental science class where we went out with the Idaho Fishing Game to do conservation work. Um, we would build duck boxes in the wood shop at school during the week, um, and we would take canoes and go down, go down rivers and take our ladders, load, load up our canoes with these birdhouses and these ladders and all our tools and and we'd go down the river um, and find trees to to go place these 
these uh, wood duck boxes to restore the wood duck population. Um, and years later, I found that it, it, it had actually worked. So we had actually worked to restore uh, the wood duck population um, in uh, the Snake River watershed in Idaho um, in high school. So I learned also I hunted and I fished and um, I, I grew up shooting and, and um, that just naturally led to me wanting to serve my country, I feel like. Um, being being raised in in a, a super super right wing state, and uh, with my dad, my stepdad being being super right wing, I I just got it. Um, and when I when I joined the army, um, I was twenty years old, and um, I was still a kid, right? So, um, deployed to Iraq um, and uh, saw, saw what we were there for. And that wasn't the, the bill I was sold. Um, and I saw what we were doing there. Um, and I saw my buddy kill himself. I was a combat medic um, and I had to treat him. So, uh, that was, and I had eight months left in my deployment and I had my platoon and I had to be combat ready for still. And so I didn't have time to mourn properly. So I came home with PTSD um, and uh, it took a few years, but by chance we started homesteading. Um, and let me, I pause, found that the, let me pause you for a sec, Jake. I want to, I want to ask about a couple of things before we kind of go down the agricultural road. Okay. What, I mean, what, what originally drew you to an interest in these environmental conservation classes in high school? Part of the class was, was part of the, most of the grade was um, based on volunteer hours okay. for the Idaho fishing game. And um, the volunteer hours were about being in the being in the woods where where I loved, right? Um, and uh, going out going out in the wilderness. Who wouldn't want to get credit for uh, taking a, a canoe trip down down right. the river, right? And, <laughs> um, so that really, I I'd, I'd been hunting and I'd been fishing and. Um, I, I like growing up doing that, I had this opportunity in high school to go do some more of that, but in a different way, that was a no brainer for me. Got it. Why the army and why the medic route? Uh, the army, um, the army would take me, <laughs> I, uh, uh, the army took me. I was a, a big boy, um, and they had waivers at the time. So I actually enlisted as explosive ordnance disposal. Yeah. Um, and uh, luckily, I, I I didn't pass that school. But being born on the Fourth of July, I love I love explosives, right? So <laughs> the recruiter the recruiter saw that uh, the the MEPS recruiter saw that, and he's like, 
I wanted to be an MP, right? My uh, my stepdad was a an MP in the Marine Corps, so I was like, oh yeah, I want to be an MP. And um, obviously, nine eleven was my was my driving force, right? Um, I wanted to serve my country. Uh, I had classmates who had been uh, already joined up right after high school, so it took me a couple of years, but um, I. I wanted to serve my country. Um, I was patriotic and I wanted to prove it. Um, so I did. And uh, EOD school, I didn't, I didn't make it through EOD school, but I learned in EOD school what EOD truly does other than, other than um, taking care of IEDs. Um, their, their sole purpose is to save soldiers' lives, right? They're, they're there to prevent soldiers from dying from, mm -hmm. from ordnance when they can. Um, so when I failed EOD school, uh, the top 25 needs of the army came up and uh, they said, choose three. And I chose medic as my top choice and they gave it to me. Um, so that's, I wanted to, I wanted to help save soldiers. That's, that's why, why medic happened. Got it. Um, what time frame and was this? I, uh, I was in the army from 2007 uh, to 2011, so four years almost. Okay, and um, I I can most likely relate to what the bill of goods was sold to you as to the 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 reason for the involvement in Iraq, but I don't want to guess at that. You tell me what they told you you were doing there, and then when you got there and realized that wasn't it. What well, was we, were, about it? We, we were there for weapons of mass destruction, right? That mm -hmm. was the, the reason we were there, uh, mm -hmm. that, that they told us. Um, and I never left a pipeline while we were there. And mm -hmm. I didn't have, we didn't have a real, a real enemy because um, the Aussies and the Brits were, were in our location before before we were there and they just they dominated before we got there so all we were there is basically secu security for the pipelines um and that took that took a long time for me to come to terms with right because when you're when you believe something to your foundation like that um the truth is, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to even acknowledge, right? right. I was with the 1377 uh, Air Assault Field Artillery Battalion. They were part of the 17th Fires Brigade out of Fort Lewis, um, which is now okay. JBLM. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, being lied to, right, is one thing. And then going to Iraq, not really having an enemy. We had a, a few IEDs, right? Um, we did QRF missions, and we were shot at a couple times. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't true combat like we would we would see in Afghanistan the next year, where I had dozens of friends die. I didn't go to Afghanistan, but my unit did. The next year, I was out of the army by then. Um, and I had more friends die. 
right? They were, and they were in combat all the time. They were in a field artillery mission. It was, it was, uh, so that was, that was rough. Um, not knowing our, who our enemy was and then dealing with uh, toxic leadership in our unit, I would say, is, is mm-hmm. we had an enemy within. Um, it's taken years for me to piece together my buddy's suicide. Um, the events that led up to it, the events that happened afterwards. I was private daily, right? I, and I, I was just uh, low man on the totem pole. I didn't, I didn't, they didn't tell me shit afterwards. Um, or before, I didn't even know he was on suicide watch. Um, and we were, uh, we were stationed on a camp, my platoon, we were stationed on a camp about 15 miles off the Cobb, where, off of Cobb Basra, where all of the, the services were. Um, and this soldier, my buddy needed, um, he needed mental health. Uh, his wife was, was messing around back home, right? And telling him about it and draining the bank account, the normal, the normal Dear Jody letters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he needed help and he was a cook and we had two other cooks. So he was non-essential to the mission. He was considered non-essential personnel. It was a, a luxury to have a third cook where we were because cooking meant boiling bags of frozen food and doing the dishes and any Joe could do that, right? So he needed help and my command refused to send him back to the Cobb for oh, any length of time to uh, receive mental health, uh, to, get, to get help from JAG, to uh, potentially get the divorce rolling or whatever that he needed. Right, um, and they they kept him isolated, um, and then he killed himself. Um, my first sergeant gave him the weapon the morning he did it because apparently he was on suicide watch, and uh, he asked to clean his weapon that morning and the first the first sergeant gave it to him it was like i didn't know that i didn't know any of that until till years later um because uh the walls were thin at our we were intense right and the command sergeant major uh his driver was told me that the command sergeant major said that the told the first sergeant, you might as well pull the trigger yourself um, by giving him his weapon that morning. Um, and no one ever got, no one ever got held accountable. So I, I, I have a hard time with, I have a hard time with um, really patriotism anymore. I don't, I got lied to, we got lied to about Iraq. Um, I saw su- soldier suicide firsthand. Um, and no one get held accountable. And today, 10, 10 years, 12 years after I got back, we're still in Iraq and soldiers are still killing themselves. 
Right. Mm-hmm. I, I it's hard for me to square. It's hard for me to square what I did as as service. Um, and that leads into what I'm doing now, which I feel is is real service to uh, the earth and humanity. It's one of these things that gets talked about, but it gets talked about in in a different context, right? That that the conversation around veteran suicide is it, it's in an attempt to react to the problem rather than in some ways try to figure out why the problem exists in the first place where are they falling where are they falling in the river i was a platoon commander um my first deployment to afghanistan and then i was a company xo my second deployment and um i had several marines between those two deployments and then after uh, i got back from that deployment who were with me when I was a platoon commander, commit suicide for you know, various reasons. I mean, we lost more folks to suicide following that deployment than we did in or during that deployment. And, you know, I, I wasn't obviously friends with those folks and they, you know, after you sort of leave that platoon, somebody else comes in and they go to different places in a lot of instances they go to different commands or they go to different units um and so i didn't hear anything about it until sometimes years afterwards that uh that that was that that had happened to them and it's always stuck with me uh as to why right because we were in the same deployment together and nothing happened in my mind that would have necessitated that and so you always wonder, right? Like what, what was that that caused them to take that step? Was it family? Was there something else that they experienced that you just not being able to be everywhere at once didn't know about? Um, so there's always been that piece of, of my service that, uh, that's been hard to reconcile. It's not as close as what you described, but it's, it's, it's an element of it. Yeah. You're connected. You you directly. You know someone directly. Multiple people who have committed suicide. We're all affected by it. As you, as some reality set in for you um, towards the end of your time in the army, how do you decide where you want to go next? What's that transition <laughs> process like? So, getting out of the army, I was. Uh, I was chaptered. They, I got an honorable discharge, but um, I deployed at 270 pounds, and uh, I got down to 240, and mm-hmm. uh, they still started my chapter paperwork a month before a month before we redeployed. They they had my chapter paperwork. Um, for those that don't know, Jake, what for those that don't know, listening, what's what's chap? What are you referring to as chapter paperwork? Um, where they they essentially kick you out of kick you out of the army for for being overweight. That's yep. It's still an honorable discharge that I got, and I I got I get my benefits right, um, but they wouldn't let me finish my contract. I signed a five year contract, mm-hmm. um, and I did about four years. So okay. Um, that was 
that was a complex that I had to get over for for a while um, afterwards. Got it. <laughs> a, a little bit of blow to my pride. I said. <laughs> so I had a I had some some issues to to work through getting out of the army, right? PTSD. Um, also, you go into the military and you get months and months and months of training, and uh, sometimes a year, depending on on what your job was, right? Um, and you are are uh, it's ingrained in you to rely on your battle buddy, right? You rely on the guy next to you. You have your brother's back, right? Um, App processing is like two weeks, right? And they say, good luck. Yeah. They they give you the boot and they're like, good luck on your own. Um, We have no battle buddies for you. The services we have for you aren't great um, and good luck, and they're hard to figure out. So good luck. Um, No wonder, no wonder, it was 22 veterans a day for a long time, right? And they've made progress apparently, and now it's the the numbers like 17 a day, but that's still too many. That's we're we're not we're not touching the solution. Um, and so when I got out, um, I tried school. I tried to use the GI Bill. Um, I tried different jobs. I tried switching majors a couple times, and I finally figured out school wasn't for me. Um, and I got my real estate license. Um, I'd wanted to sell real estate for a while, and uh, for a few years I did, and I did it successfully. I sold like sixty houses in in my first three years, um, and uh, I. I had to hustle a lot um, because I didn't grow up here in Washington. I stayed here after the army um, and I met my wife and, and I, I love Western Washington here. It's always green. Um, and I got burnt out selling real estate. I was driving all the time. Um, and we finally, I'd been dreaming about homesteading for, for since I was since I was in high school, right? So um, we finally decided to start homesteading, and we got five acres in a small town um, in the foothills of Mount St. Helens, um, and we started homesteading. And I figured out that this is what I needed to be doing, and this is, that's what got me really heavily on my agriculture journey was was just finally starting to homestead um, and growing growing a garden, raising chickens. Uh, and that turned into that turned into me finding regenerative agriculture, regenerative agroforestry. I'm lucky I have uh, access to almost 200 acres of private forest um, here in western Washington where there's hardly any public land. So I'm lucky that I have this access and going out in the forest, I have been able to face those truths. Working what I do in the forest, I, um, I do ladder fuel reduction. Um, I collect the excess slash 
Um, and we're doing this to prevent wildfires. Explain to us uh, what that is for those that don't for those that don't know forestry that well. So our forests, especially here in the West, um, we're facing we're facing catastrophic forest fires every summer, right? And that they're catastrophic because uh, we have um, an excess fuel load that has been caused by mismanagement, uh, really decades, centuries of, of mismanagement. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've prevented forest, or we've prevented fires from um, being on the landscape for so long that there's so much fuel that they're that we're having these fires that actually kill the forest. Fire is no longer good for the forest because it's climbing all the way to the top and burning the crown of the trees, which kills the kills the trees. When when the indigenous were in the forests, uh, they were managing the forests and, and um, they were letting fires. Um, burn to uh, take care of the excess fuel. They never let it get to where it was um, it was overloaded like this. Um, because here in America we have we have what seems to be just giant pendulum swings where we don't we don't want clear cuts. We don't want we, we understand that clear cuts and, and spraying and, and destroying our forests is, is not a good thing, but that pendulum swings to don't touch it. It, it, it swings from, oh, that's bad, so, we, so then we can't touch it, which is arguably worse um, because these forests were managed when we got here. Um, and when fires started, they stayed on the floor of the forest and they didn't climb into the crowns of the trees. Um, and we didn't have cities built in forests that um, our cities are burning now every summer, right? Um, and in Colorado over, over this past winter, right. um, a city burned. So, um, we have to manage our forests to avoid these catastrophic fires. And, and that's, that's what I'm doing now with, with U.S. Rake Force. Um, the former president said to, he stood in a burnt forest in Northern California, um, and he said, rake the forest, and everyone thought he was nuts. Um, and that was the most right thing he could have, he said in four years. Um, and because me and my buddies were out with goats, they're eating the underbrush. We're doing we're doing ladder fuel reduction, which is just trimming the lower dead branches of the trees, so that if a fire does break out, it's not going to climb the tree and destroy mm -hmm. it. Like it's going to stay on the ground, right? And we take this excess biomass and we turn it into biochar, which is a regenerative soil amendment. Are there people that would argue that that actual process of burning those those that organic material 
releases things into the atmosphere that are detrimental? Um, it releases a lot less things than if it were to burn in a forest fire. And the likelihood, the likelihood of it burning in a forest fire right now is pretty high, considering, mm. considering it's every, every year from Mexico to British Columbia, there's fire. And so, it's, it's less because of the process that you use as opposed to the process yeah, of we're not, being we're consumed not releasing in a forest fire. A complete burn, right? A complete burn in a forest fire releases all of the carbon into the atmosphere. Mm. Right? Okay. So okay. if you do an incomplete, you do this incomplete burn, you're storing, you, you, you essentially are harvesting this carbon and preventing it from being released into the atmosphere Got to it. cause more climate change. Okay. Um, and then this is also a, uh, a regenerative soil, like it's a soil magnet. Mm -hmm. um, it stores, it, it's a, it helps with water retention. Um, it helps with fertilizer retention. Uh, it's an ecological remediator. Um, we can use it in, in like water filtration um, and ecological cleanup. There's ecological cleanup ad applications. Um, so it's this, it's taking this problem and turning it into a resource. Um, and and are, it, you, are you selling this biochar now? How are you getting it out um, into the public sphere? Currently, currently it's a, a limited market. Um, okay. But uh, we're using it. Okay. Um, I've turned my farm into what we call a, a biomass utilization campus where um, we go collect wood from, from my best friend's forest and um, we turn it into uh, regenerative soil amendments here on my farm. I've probably got 500 yards of, of wood chips. That's my hugoculture garden, mm -hmm. excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, there's probably 500 tons of uh, forest biomass um, that is now a garden bed in my front yard. Um, and I'm building more, uh, I've probably got a thousand feet of hugoculture hedge um, lined out right now that I'm, that I'm working on. What's a hugoculture? Um, Hugo culture is uh, rotting wood covered in compost. Yeah. Okay. All right. I've heard of this. So it's it's uh, the the wood, the rotting wood acts as a, as like a sponge, right? Yeah. It's water retention, so uh, it cuts back on the need for water um, by like seventy five percent. So this is drought. This is drought farming, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and then the wood breaks down into, into compost. It's, it's a slow release fertilizer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's inoculated with fungi, which add to the decomposition process. Mm -hmm. um, so I, we're, creating, we're creating living soil, essentially. The worms love it. The, the bugs love it. The birds love it. Um, it's it's creating new habitat um and it's good for the worker it's 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 good for someone's mental health to 
to be out in the woods, right? right. And to be doing something beneficial. Um, Is the plan, me. Jake, to bring more veterans into this space? I've been hosting uh, regenerative agroforestry workshops in the last few years. Um, and that's what kind of birthed the idea of rake force. Okay. Um, after, after Trump said uh, rake the forest, he started, he started Space Force. And we were teaching these workshops and I had a bunch of veterans in the forest one day and they were all raking the forest. And I was like, oh, this is, this is rake force. We, we got to start rake force. Um, so it started as rake forces really starting as like um, teaching workshops, getting veterans interested in regenerative forestry and agriculture um, and seeing the benefits of, of doing this work. And I've been able to reach like probably four dozen veterans in the last few years. It's been a COVID friendly uh, event, yeah. right? Yeah. We're out, we're outside, we're able to social distance. Um, and that's been a benefit to our, our local veterans throughout this, this pro this past few years, right? Because everything's shut down. Well, the forest is still there and it still needs work. Um, How are you reaching these and, guys and gals? Um, through social, through social media, okay. um, and through my, my network of, of, uh, veterans that I've, I've built in the last, uh, I guess 10 years here, here in the Northwest. Okay. I live right between Portland and Seattle. So um, we, we, get, uh, we get veterans from both areas. You, you mentioned to me over a message prior to this that you just got picked up to be a board member for the Veterans Ecological Trade Collective. Tell me a little bit more yes. about that. So the Veterans Ecological Trade Collective uh, was a nonprofit that was started about four years ago um, after uh, a donation of land happened. Um, this land donation was 120 acres. Um, it was a former industrial slaughterhouse. Um, and uh, they also made compost. Um, the land has uh, 50 acres of forest and about 70 acres of prairie. Um, it's got about 10 acres of industrial uh, infrastructure, um, but it's sort of a wasteland right now. Um, the, the mission is to clean this place up and uh, use it as a uh, veterans ecological trade collective where we can provide um, veterans in the region with the space to start their ecological trade business. Um, and uh, nothing really happened in, in the last four years. Um, they haven't really had the right leadership. Um, uh, the guy who secured the, the land donation, that, that's a, a great benefit to the, to the local veterans, um, but it's, it's just kind of stalled out the, the first 
few years and there's brand new leadership um, okay. stepping up right now. Um, and it looks like uh, it looks like things are actually rolling. I've, I've been given um, essentially permission to use my uh, real estate skills um, to lead generate for funds, right? For okay. um, clean up money, right? Or donations. Um, so I'm actually needing an environmental a commercial environmental cleanup company at the site tomorrow to to get a bid. Okay. We're starting to get the ball rolling on on finally cleaning that place up. So it's going to be a benefit. Um, we just had a work party uh, a couple weeks ago and 25 veterans showed up um, to our, our first like cleanup work party in a couple years. So um, it's got really good support here um and it's it's uh, it feels like a new start well jake look i want to be mindful of your time and i, I appreciate what you've been able to provide me today um is there as we sort of wrap up here i want to give you an opportunity to comment as to if there's anything that i'm not asking you that i should be or anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up um I, well, I'll address some, some pushback that I, I frequently get. So some, yeah. some people will say, oh, we, we need to let these fires happen out West, mm -hmm. right? Um, and fire's good for the landscape. Um, and uh, that's true but it's not true of the unmanaged landscape that we have we need we need an active we need an active um effort to clean up our forests before we just let the fires go um and by doing that we we solve multiple problems if we we have 80 million acres of national forests that need this, this um, forest management, really thinning, um, fuel reduction. And uh, if we don't do it, we're, we're toast. That, that our forests are gone because the fires are getting worse every year. Um, so we have to spend some money um, on, this is defense, really. This is, we can get, like letting the fires just happen would, would just be, would just be giving up, right? Um, so once we get, once we get this, this initial cleanup, fire is absolutely part of the landscape, right? So I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying don't have a vibrant forestry industry because there's 80 million acres that need to be thinned. There's so much forest product out there. So um, this isn't, this isn't, this is jobs, right? This, this is, this is a, a civilian conservation core type um, task that we uh, 
that we have to do or we we won't be we won't be breathing clean air in the future because there are there are filtration systems the trees so um i think that's it what struck me most at least at first about this conversation with jake was his candor and honesty his ability to speak openly about the suicide of his friend and the effects that had on him his struggles with his weight role in the army the difficulties he had in finding purpose after he left active duty and the pushback he regularly gets about his work in agroforestry this ability to speak openly about one's difficulties is not something you find every day so i thought it was an admirable quality of jake's that i wanted to highlight here we don't often talk much in the agricultural world about the needs of our forest it's almost as if it's this thing that we should save and prevent from being destroyed but few people are as engaged as Jake in how and why we do this, or how and why we should save it. Like so many things in our natural environment, if managed appropriately, there are a myriad of benefits. Fuel reduction generates a material that can be used as a soil amendment, can be used to feed livestock. It prevents naturally occurring fires from totally devastating these environments, and it provides labor for an employee pool i.e. military veterans, to be outside and find purpose in their profession. If you'd like to learn more about what Jake is doing at U.S. Rake Force, feel free to reach out to him on LinkedIn or visit their website at rakeforce.us. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desau, and until next time, stay frosty. Mm -hmm.